it, it it's no shock that your guys that throw in the mid to upper to low 90s, right, uh, all run well. And they may not be terribly fast all the time, but they run well. They have these natural mechanics that just come to them. They jump really well. Um, you know, we've tried to, in the past, correlate certain movements to different things we were looking at, right? Whether it's for a lacrosse athlete, we were um, trying to correlate a broad jump to shot velocity. Um, for a, a baseball player, we were trying to correlate certain med ball drills and then even broad jump and pull-ups to certain velocities. And they're loose, you know, um, but in all in all, if you're not successful at a reverse lunge, if you're not successful at a chin up or pull up, if you really struggle bear crawling, if you can't run really well, these are, these are foundational movements we have to work on first. That was Dr. Nick Cerillo, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Welcome to episode 183. I'm your host, Joel Smith. So Dr. Nick Cerillo is our guest today. He received his doctorate of education in sport and performance psychology from the University of Western States. Nick is the co-owner and general manager of the Athletes Warehouse, which is a sports performance facility located in Pleasantville, New York. Nick also serves as the head pitching coach at Fox Lane High School, where the baseball team has had tremendous success. So I was first acquainted with Nick watching a presentation that he did on medicine ball training uh, as special strength for baseball pitchers. Uh, you can also find that presentation on the show notes on justflysports.com if you head over to our website. So I was completely blown away by Nick's, uh, not only just his general knowledge and background of why he was doing this uh, training method, but just going into the, but just going into the progressions and what he's trying to get out of each exercise and giving the player's arms a break and building this very unique but highly specific, other than the elbow and the arm, method of, of improving baseball uh, pitchers' velocities. And it really, to me, it was the epitome of special, special strength, the epitome of this bridge between strength and sports skill or, or the gym and sports skill. And at, at the end of the day, if you work with athletes, it really is all about those things that transfer to on-field performance. You've heard it from a number of our guests. And I felt like the work that Nick and the work that Nick is doing is just really the epitome of that. So on the show today, Nick is going to go all into that medicine ball program, the principles behind it, the progressions, and how the medicine ball speeds is correlating to fastball speeds and the, the use of that as a key performance indicator. We're, this show doesn't just go only to baseball pitchers. There's a lot of other dynamics in here. Nick gives concepts on using general physical preparation methods in the weight room for rotational athletes in general, throwing athletes in general. He goes into addressing postural issues with throwing athletes, uh, postural imbalances, and something he's going to go into that's definitely very important for any throwing athlete, a pitcher, a javelin thrower, uh, is the action of the front leg, the break leg, or the block leg. So he's going to get into that. But that um, that leg action is universal. It happens in a lot of different sports skills. You're going to see it, as he as he's going to mention, you also see it in a lacrosse throw. And it's just something that, even if you don't work with a pitcher specifically, these are important principles that we need to know when we look at athletes and we're assessing their skills and abilities and what we can do to make them better. Nick's also going to start out the show by just talking about the factors that are contributing to the massive increases in injury in baseball and, again, how his how his program is doing something about that, taking a lot of throwing away from these athletes for four months out of the year. So all that being said, this was a really fun show, a highly detailed show. Let's get on to episode 183 with Dr. Nick Cerillo. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, I I enjoy talking to coaches from all walks of the field. I, I know a lot of a lot of what you're doing is in the world of baseball and throwing. And could you tell me a little bit more about yourself, uh, what you are doing, athletes you work with, and how you got there? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I am a I have my undergrad in exercise science, my master's in exercise science as well. There was a small focus in uh, sports psychology there. And then I went and got my doctorate in sports psychology. Um, during the master's uh, with my partner, we opened up Athletes Warehouse. It's a 
17,500 square foot training facility. We train athletes from an array of different sports with a focus. Yes, absolutely. In baseball, softball. And then we train a large number of uh, girls and um, guys lacrosse as well. Yeah. So one of the things that really intrigued me about what you're doing is, and it's always the theme of this podcast is just what things that make the end result better. And I know there's always going to be limitations in uh, just a general strength only mindset. And so I'm excited to get into some of the specifics. Uh, but before we get to that portion specifically, I know baseball is notorious for just massive injury risks. And I think like Tommy John surgery up exponentially in the last uh, decade or two and, and everything that goes with that. So from your perspective, um, you know, mechanics, overtraining, no time off, what are, what are some things that are contributing to that? Well, I think the the game has changed a lot, right? So we're we're really looking for velocity, uh, and we're seeing that uh, increases in velocity will mean decreases in batting average. Um, however, uh, I think there's a lot going on at the younger ages that I think get um, missed because we really focus on Major League Baseball, right? We we look at always the pro level of this, um, the demands to get recruited and how we get recruited right now. Uh, put a tremendous amount of stress on a young pitcher's arm, right? They're almost told to, you're going to go this weekend and you're going to throw all out, but you're going to throw all out on Saturday. You're going to throw, but don't worry. It's only going to be 20 to 30 pitches. And then you're going to throw all out again on Sunday and it's going to be 20 to 30 pitches. And then potentially if your team does well in this meaningless championship game, you're going to pitch again on Monday in front of, you know, all these coaches that are coming to see you. Um, in theory, it's great. You're going to get a lot of exposure. In actuality, what ends up happening is now you have this kid who's destroyed. He's supposed to go home and now train and try and recover over this week and then get to the weekend and try and repeat that same action again, again and again and again over this entire summer. So this this process is it's basically, by the way, made high school baseball obsolete, right? There, the main focus is summer baseball at this point in time, and at, at least I'm speaking for the East Coast. Um, and you know, it, it's a shame, but the primary concern has now become velocity. How hard can I throw? And we really haven't done anything to remove that from the scenario, right? A coach is still going to pick a kid that can throw 92, 93. And granted, he should. We know that that's going to mean somewhat more success at the college level. The unfortunate part is we've now seen kids at very young ages, uh, freshmen, sophomores, take these high, high risk behaviors to try and get their velocity to these levels without really um, doing any due diligence behind what are the risks associated with these? And, you know, should I be doing all these showcases and then also combining that with some of these very risky type behaviors? Um, and, and it's, and it's unfortunate, right? Because really what it boils down to at the end of the day, that every one of these kids is really interested in knowing is what is the answer? How do I get there? And, and they'll do anything to figure out what that answer is. Um, and so, you know, for us, from our perspective, it's where we stepped in medicine ball training was our sort of answer to to this because we knew we weren't going to stop that problem. Right. We're not going to be the 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 lone guys out here with our, you know, our, our signs saying like, hey, listen, no more worrying about velocity. You, we know you need to worry about velocity in the game of baseball. Um, so we tried to implement a, uh, a system that allowed an athlete to really um create this velocity, attain, try and attain this velocity without putting any further stress on them throughout the time, inclusive of even our athletes that will still go and play all summer long uh, like that. Yeah, it's it's really an incredible thing, not in a good way, the American sports system and the pressure and what you, what's constantly needed to get to the next tier. I've had um, chats with colleagues and the idea of the only way that perhaps we could even solve this problem is if we just became kind of like uh, Russia was in the 70s or 80s and not that that was perfect but at least there's like a a, a unified long-term developmental model where yep. where all this stuff is is mandated we're not it's so it's just one of those negative side effects um a question I have well, for oh yeah sorry go ahead you know what I I, I do uh, not to interrupt you I'm sorry but I, I I do also think too that not everybody is meant to be that elite athlete and I yeah. think that's something that we need to come to terms with as well right it's it's very difficult to outplay our genetic makeup 
And I think that's a tough thing for a lot of people to swallow. But I, I, I do think baseball is humbling in the sense that it does do a good job of differentiating the levels of play for their, for their athletes and, and letting you know where you're going to fall. The, the key would be to, I think, and, and I mentioned this in a previous presentation that I've done, it, we need to get better at figuring out how to advertise um, research and really good research to the kids because we live in a very different generation nowadays where in the past, our parents were the ones that were the, were the answers, right? They had the answers. Today, the kids have the answers. They go into a doctor's appointment knowing more than mm -hmm. a doctor about what the question they're going to have on their arm or their mm -hmm. knee that's messed up, right? So they, they have all the access. What our problem is, is we're not delivering it in a consumable way. And, you know, a research article is great, right? Everybody likes to consume research because, you know, this is, this is the gold standard. But these guys are putting out phenomenal studies and these kids will never get them. They won't get them for three, four, 10 years from now till they actually find some article that somebody like yourself wrote or talked about. And when they deciphered 10 different articles and actually came up with the real truth. And it's, it's a shame because that's really how we can stop a lot of this is if they really understood the damage they were doing and how they didn't need to do it in that way. Yeah, I can understand that. I do think too, like the Soviet system, it, they they broke a lot of eggs to make the cake. You know, the kids who yep. weren't as good there would just get, you know, it, it just didn't work out for them. And it probably, whereas at least here you have a chance. I mean, maybe you're not going to play at a high level, but you can still play. And, 100%. and so I think that there's, you know, there's always a give and take, but like you said, it's, I think it's, it can be the best situation if we can arm the kids and the parents and, and improve the culture of the whole, the whole thing. Uh, in terms of the like specialization aspect, so this is something I wanted to get into with you is are most of the, and, and I'm a little foreign to this, but are most of the players that are, you guys are intaking, are these players who are uh, specializing in baseball and therefore that, that however much, I think four month break, they're getting to throw medicine balls instead of baseball. I mean, so these are guys who wouldn't play another sport anyways, or, or, or are they playing another sport? Like what, how does that factor into what you're doing? So we do have some of both, right? Um, and, we, and we do have a lot of both, I should say. Um, the we do have multi-sport athletes that are involved in our in our system, and and because you know, obviously, you're not going to turn away a great athlete that wants to also play another sport. What I would say is this: is the recruiting process basically does create this specialization. But I think, um, you know, I, I I love the term specialization because to me that sounds like, hey, I'm really good at something. I'm really specialized at it, right? We've, we've sort of villainized that in this world um, to the sense that, you know, we're saying this person is only focusing on one sport, but it's, it's the job of their coaches to ensure that it's different exposures along the way, right? And there's no problem with a kid saying, hey, the sport I play is baseball, right? But my winter season is my strength training and cross training time where I'm going to even though I'm a pitcher, like we have all of our pitchers do agility drills because you still need to be an athlete, right? And we can't have them just think that they're only going to operate in one direction the entire time. So it's, it's having these different exposures, though the athlete may just be a baseball player, they are specialized, but they're really good at being specialized. They're not just going to throw a baseball year round. So yes, we do shut, we try, I should say we try, right? We don't have total control. So we try to shut most of them down um, for a four month window and have proven to a lot of them that they can shut down for a four month window, which would sound very insane to most of the baseball community um, and still increase velocity over time. Um, and, and, you know, uh, the simplistic way I can put this program um, and not to, you know, it's, it's nothing mystical, right? It's just that with that time off and allowing for these highly aggressive movements, uh, we have never had somebody get hurt doing the movements and have never had anybody decrease in velocity while doing the movements. Yeah. If you had to rank the, the reasons for injury in baseball, I mean, would you just say, would you say the number one is just no time off and just, just continual pressure to throw faster and zero time off? Yeah, I would say overuse and um, high exposures to really um, high pressured situations is what I would say. So I, I don't think that 100 pitches 
in, is necessarily the same for everybody. I think it's actually ridiculous that we have a pitch count in mm. baseball um, because that would be like me saying, hey, everybody in the gym, go lift 315. Now, did that feel the same to everybody? No. So, you know, when you're taking a pitch count series, I think that's very different. How many of those pitches in that hundred pitches were maximal intent? How many of them were really, really difficult for that? Was were there runners on second and third with two outs and he needed to hump up and throw, you know, 90 plus in that situation? Well, that's going to take way more of a taxation on his arm than, than, you know, no outs, no runner or two outs, no runners on situation. Um, so I think it's, it's really these, these high pressured, um, exposures that we have. And that's really what I was getting at with the summer is every single time they're on the mound in the summer, when they're on these showcase organizations, they're playing in front of these people and they're playing in front of coaches. They're playing in front of, you know, um, potentially some of them in front of pro scouts. Those are super high pressured. Who cares is on the base. They're throwing as hard as they can every single time. So I would say, yes, the number one cause I would absolutely say is overuse with with um, limited exposures to other opportunities to create um, to create improvement on your throwing mechanics. Right. So for a lot of pitchers, we'll go right to long toss. That's like our off season. Like and I love long toss. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's, it's and it is an integral part of our throwing process when we get to throwing. But you're going to long toss all year. You know what I mean? It, it, when are we not using that arm in this, in these high level velocities? And what's even worse is we're talking about elbow injuries, right? So what, what's often forgot is how important the forearm is in these, in these elbow injuries, you have the flexor mass tendons. They take up 70% of the force Newton force. That's going to go through the elbow, right? If they fail at any point, we know the UCL can only carry, 30%. So at a certain point, that equation is going to go the wrong way. And when is that going to happen for each kid? I have no idea. And I, and I wish I could tell them, but I do know one thing that, that perpetually grabbing that small baseball and throwing it as hard as I can is only increasing the chance that that equation is going in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I like what you said too, about we really do kind of demonize specialization and it, but it, like in thinking of, okay, like the island of Fiji, like it's rugby. Like if you're there, it's you're going to probably play rugby, but you're not, you're probably playing multiple positions. You're playing, doing free play and tons of movement. Same thing with football in Brazil. You're playing futsal and you're, and I, one thing I like with Andy Ryland, who's been on the show before, said is, uh, you know, just because you're a baseball player doesn't mean you, that's the only position you do. And you're, you know, you're not like nine 100%. and you're the pitcher and that's it. Like you do other things. And so I just, I, it's always good to, I do think, make that distinction. I mean, I'm all for multi-sport, but I also am, I'm not, I'm not like so hardcore that I can't see that in certain situations that it's not like this terrible thing. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think to what's unfortunate for some of our kids that hear these statements from, and you know, listen, Nick Saban's a phenomenal coach, right? But when he says that he would never recruit anybody that wasn't a multi-sport athlete, right? And he made some outlandish statement like that. And this sticks in the heads of some of these kids. He's dealing with non-humans, right? The kids he sees are not human beings. Those guys are freaks. They're the 1% of 1% of 1% of athletes on this planet. Those aren't who I deal with. That's not who I get to see, right? I deal with a kid that needs so much work on his pitching mechanics. If he wants to be a D3 college pitcher, that if we don't specialize at a certain point and start to understand that we need to work on this, then we're not going to be a college athlete. Yeah. And I think it's unfair to say to them that, hey, you can just pick this up in the later months of the winter or, you know, in early spring and think you're going to be a college pitcher. Yeah. In talking with Jeremy Frisch recently, too, on, I think it was like 10 episodes ago, 15 episodes ago, he was talking about uh, football. You can be a little less skilled, get to the game a little later and be OK. Baseball is one of those games that you just have to start a, a little earlier. Like you have to get the it's finer yeah. skill. You just have to start a little earlier versus some other sports. And that, well, and I mean, too, like just think of it anatomically, right? What we do to our body over time. Right. So when you look at most high level throwers, right? They're going to have retroversion in their shoulder, right? Their shoulder's going to have 
formed retroverted. And that's from throwing at that younger age, right? They're going to have more internal rotation in their front side. That's going to be from throwing at that younger age. Their, their body's doing that during those, those, you know, morphing times where we can have these improvements. And yeah, it isn't a sport that you can just pick up like that unless you're a freak. And for those, we love them. I love coaching them. I love being around them, right? Who doesn't? But they just don't come around every day. And not every kid should think that that's going to be their same situation. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the Gymware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the Gymware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the Gymware go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics, so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting stuff with the whole concept. But um, it, so in terms of uh, let's talk about general first before we get to the specific in the med ball, just because I think things that are probably more applicable to anyone, even if you don't work with an overhead. And to me, I, I look at your med ball drills. I'm like variations of these could apply for for anyone who has to throw something at high velocity or strike something at high velocity. I feel like, and that's you know just had to talk about with Doc Yesis and the special strength elements of things. But before we get to the specifics of the med ball for baseball. Tell me a little bit about how you approach upper and lower extremity for your athlete populations, just from a general weight room perspective. So just the typical, the typical stuff. What are you looking for? What are you looking to, um, for them to do well? And how does that work out in your program? Yeah. So, um, any, any real rotational athlete, we are looking at, um, we're looking at a couple things. Um, uh, number one, we are looking at the reverse lunge. Um, we love that movement. I'd love to see how, um, you can take a kid who can have this tremendous squat pattern, right? He can, he can back squat the house, he says, coming into you and you put him under a mild load in a reverse lunge and you see this massive hip instability and you see the internal rotation of the back leg as he starts to weaken in the glute. And it's just this amazing thing that now it's going to tell me so much of a picture of how he's going to swing a bat, how he's going to throw a ball, how he's going to shoot a lacrosse ball. It's it, it, it just illuminating a lot of things. So that's definitely one of them that we've gone to. Um, and then, you know, from a, how we're differentiating the upper and lower, uh, I think that's, it's almost tough for me to answer because I'm generally never doing that. Right. Uh, especially because like we've said, and, and I do want to try and say general here for you, but with our throwing athletes and even our lacrosse, lacrosse athletes, uh, you know, this lat is so impactful in those actions, right? So it's very difficult for me to differentiate the shoulder region from the hip region if I'm not going to account for the lat, right? And this lat is really hindering a lot of my throwing athletes, helping a lot of my lacrosse athletes. And, you know, so it's something where we're really looking at what is their shoulder work like? How does it move? Right. How does it function with the rest of their body during certain actions? And again, we love simple. We deal with kids. 
love symbol, right? So yes, the overhead squat, I know it's, it's not the glory it used to be, right? But I love it because it'll start to tell us a lot about their shoulder, thoracic spine. It'll tell us a lot about their hip. And it's a very simple drill that we can do with a lot of kids. And we can see a lot right down all the way to their dorsiflexion capacity. Um, and then a bear crawl. We, we're infatuated with crawling. Love it. Um, I, I love what it tells us about an athlete. Uh, the cross crawl patterning that it that it illuminates for us, the midline stability, the shoulder uh, congruency. You'll notice when you get um, it, it's one of the hardest exercises for our return to sport athletes from a labral tear or from a ACL tear in the knee, just because of that um, the uh, fear, the kinesophobia of putting all the pressure on that given uh, limb. Uh, so we love those movements uh, from a general standpoint. And then obviously sprinting. Um, you tell so much about an athlete just by asking them to run down our running lane. And you know so much right away. Um, it, it, it's no shock that your guys that throw in the mid to upper to low 90s, right, uh, all run well. And they may not be terribly fast all the time, but they run well. They have these natural mechanics that just come to them. They jump really well. Um, you know, we've tried to, in the past, correlate certain movements to different things we were looking at, right? Whether it's for a lacrosse athlete, we were um, trying to correlate a broad jump to shot velocity. Um, for a, a baseball player, we were trying to correlate certain med ball drills, and then even broad jump and pull-ups to certain velocities. And they're loose, you know, um, but in all in all, if you're not successful at a reverse lunge, if you're not successful at a chin-up or pull-up, if you really struggle bear crawling, if you can't run really well, these are, these are foundational movements we have to work on first. We have to make you a better moving human before we worry about what sport you're trying to do. And I know that's a very general answer, but I was trying to keep it that way. No, that's, that's fantastic. hundred percent. I, I, I love those movements, man. I mean, yeah, especially that I'm picking up the crawling myself really heavily in the last year. Uh, and I, although I've been using it for several years, but I think I've become a little bit of a fanatic the last year. I, 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 one thing you said really stuck out to me. It's something that my mentor Darian Barr says to me a lot is the idea of athletes who aren't, like you said, they're not necessarily fast, but they run well. And uh, he's spoken to me about that, but in like track and field triple jump is a good example. They, oftentimes are very fast but not as fast as long jumpers but they always but they tend to run really well because you have to do that to do certain things in the air and it's just something about good athletes i i, I always love that as a screen I, I just think that's really good stuff and so uh, with the general one last question with the general because you mentioned this early on the idea and I, I'm sure everyone who works with athletes sees this especially rotational athletes throwing athletes tennis baseball volleyball you name it like you said someone who's doing a lot of experience to their sport when there's morphological changes happening are you trying to do anything to like an athlete who has a lower right shoulder the, the prototypical are you doing anything to like balance that out do you have any guidelines or any sort of criteria are you trying to restore quote unquote any of that stuff or how do you work yeah. with athletes who have those conditions that are coming in so we're so we're we're always like we said when we're looking at the shoulder right we're looking for movement based dysfunctions right we're looking for postural based dysfunctions but we understand that not all postural based dysfunctions will actually lead to movement based dysfunctions right uh, I think back we have a kid who uh, you know you can throw ninety four ninety five but you see him sitting on the bench in the gym and you're like Jesus there's no way and then he stands up and goes to an action and he's a phenom uh, he does everything perfect. So it's just a great example that not posh, these postural dysfunctions will not always lead to that. Um, but when we are looking for those things, right, when we see a somebody stuck in scapular depression or when we see them in stuck in downward rotation with the scapula, we will constantly try to work that upward rotation. We will constantly try and get them pressing overhead. Um, and I think that's a big faux pas of the baseball realm is that we shouldn't be pressing overhead. And I'm, you know, I, guys like Eric Cressy are doing the world a tremendous justice by everything he puts out on a regular basis. And, and to be honest, we'd be lying if we weren't saying we're just basically re-preaching a mm -hmm. bunch of what he's talking about. Right. And so Really, it's it's about getting to that spot and getting that action and and, you know, really causing the actual scapula to move through the right plane that it needs to move through. 
Um, but yeah, we, we absolutely are with our throwing athletes. We absolutely are with even our lacrosse athletes. I think they're often forgotten as being an overhead athlete, uh, though many of them shoot from the side, they do live in their sport above their shoulder often. Yeah. That was one of the biggest, this kind of aha moments on my own. I, I just working with enough overhead athletes and specifically, uh, tennis athletes who had a lot of just chronic shoulder issues whenever, we did. I did put an overhead movement in the program. I just noticed those athletes with the bad shoulders were so insanely weak at that compared to their push up. Or I mean, it was just, it was so bad. And I was just, yeah. and at that moment, I'm like, okay, nobody's going to be weak in this movement anymore. And it's just been something that's, I, and it's, and it's, it's a big time. It's a big deal. It's, it's just, it, with everything we talk about, robustness, Nassim Taleb or Ido Portal. Anything like that, it's like, it's like, no, you have to, like, if you want to be robust, you have to go there and you have to be good at it. At least decent, right. not, not like amazing, but decent. Like you have to be able to go there. And, and it, and it's amazing, right? We, we, we find these areas in baseball where, where people are very weak or people are very, um, incapable of doing these things. And we're just, we, we take this option to almost avoid, but it, it, we have to do that. Great. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, yes, at certain movements, there becomes that risk reward, right? Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to snatch with every one of my yeah. pitchers? No. But if if I could progress a kid to a point where I'm sort of capped on where I need to get to and I want to try and find these other elements, I have no problem doing that. His shoulder's strong and he's proven that that overhead position is flawless. Why not? Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that we, if we – if we want to continue to progress, then we need to continue to follow that progression pattern, right? We need to overload. We need to progress the right way and we need to get there. Um, but yeah, so we, we are all for pressing overhead. We're all for a lot of those actions. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a better movement on the planet than the landmine press um, for any overhead athlete. It's just been phenomenal what it's done for our guys. Um, anybody doing it right and doing it heavy, if you don't feel your serratus, there's something wrong. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I just love the movement. I love it. I love it. All right, let's get to specifics. So cool. your, uh, presentation that I had seen on medicine ball throws for baseball, uh, phenomenal. I loved it. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing to the, the, that time that they're not pitching or playing in the year and they're doing the med ball training instead, tell me about your med ball program. What are you, what, what movements, what progression, what time, everything I want to know. Cool. So, um, so we've taken a bunch of different, uh, med ball drills that we've seen out there, right. Um, that guys have put out and we've then taken a bunch of different, uh, pitching mechanic drills and we've tried to recreate them with medicine balls. And the whole concept behind this was, okay, uh, we want to get the athlete moving with more intent over a longer period of time, meaning a four month window, having him give this maximal intent and and generally it's performed um, twice to three times a week. And we want them to do this over that long window and see if that can then transfer over to when they pick a baseball back up, they have this newfound speed at which they can move their body without fear through the shoulder, through the hip, through the foot, through the landing, everything. So um, simply put, it's six different phases. Phase one is is really about teaching an athlete how to throw a medicine ball. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but a lot of times we get kids who they just flat out don't know how to even handle the medicine ball. It's a one pound med ball. Uh, Rarely, if ever, will we go to a two. Uh, That's if I have a kid who's a college elite college or a pro guy that's looking to like really try and get a little more force output out of this. Um, the first phase is 10 different exercises. Uh, the way the exercises build is the first three are a linear progression. Um, the next three are a linear progression with row with a starting in a separation. Uh, so like starting in that, um, back shoulder, back hip, uh, separation And then the final uh, four are building on momentum. So they're building momentum with the final one, uh, finishing with a running and then throwing type action, all of which to teach the athlete that, okay, we need to maintain a certain upper body posture as we're doing it. And we need to understand that we can do this without fear and that we can do this with a lot of velocity right now. Um, After that, we move to a laterally positioned, uh, and these are all on our YouTube. 
um, a laterally positioned uh, back foot. So they're much closer to the, now the actual pitching mechanics um, as they go through this. And each one of the next phases have uh, eight uh, exercises in them. So we go from laterally positioned, then we go from resisted. Now, after the first two, it's really up to the coach working with them to decide what they need next, right? So some athletes need resisted training there. Some athletes need overspeed training, which is our phase four, where the band is pulling them then in that situation. Some athletes need just front side work, where they land very soft with their front leg. So what we do is we built these little quarter mounds. They're very small, like sloped mounds. And we have the athlete land firmly on them. And what it does, because they're landing on it sooner, they react and put a lot more force through it and actually drive their legs stiffer during that moment in time. So it teaches them to land with a much stiffer front side. Um, we will then also do that for the final phase, the sixth phase, over speed wise. So if we really want them to learn how to absorb uh, more force, taking from like the triphasic um, capacity, we can't really create what we can't absorb, right? So if I'm expecting this kid to really try and, you know, produce all this force forward, but he can't absorb it on his front side, we're, we're going to give up every time there. And we know uh, through mechanics that if that front knee continues to leak and bend, uh, we're going to lose velocity as that happens after it makes front foot contact. Um, so in a nutshell, I know that was a bit wordy there, but that's our six phases. Um, it is a four month window where we try to not have our athletes throw during that. Some of them will continue to play fall baseball. We're trying to get rid of fall baseball. We hate it. Um, so we, uh, they have, they have that four month window where they have off. Um, and like I said earlier, the most amazing thing to watch is to watch a kid in week one and that neuroplasticity hit like in, in the next, that day, and then hit again later the next week. And then again, and all of a sudden you're seeing this drastic improvement, but he's getting to hear the improvement. He's hearing the ball hit the wall at a different velocity and he's feeling the action totally different. And that's when we start to, and that's right around really uh, phase two, they'll start to really start to feel that. And we really won't progress somebody out of phase one until they start getting those emotions. Um, when they get to phase two, that's where we'll start to um, take velocity of the med ball. Um, and our findings to date on that are basically we have a kid throwing a med ball in the mid uh, 30s, like low to mid 30 miles per hour. Yeah. What One He's, pound, right? One pound, yeah, okay. one pound. Um, and we haven't tried any of those ballistic balls. Uh, we wanted to, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but you know, we actually, um, uh, Pocket Radar has a radar detector that's made for cars. So it's, it can read lower miles per hour. So we started using that instead. Um, but so low to mid thirties has really equated out to about uh, low seventies to mid seventies. Um, upper thirties to low forties has equated out to upper seventies to low eighties. Um, and then mid forties to upper forties, mid eighties to potentially touch in 90 in there. And then anybody over 50 miles an hour generally has already thrown 90 plus. Um, what we, what's been really cool is we've seen athletes who um, throw a baseball harder on that scale than where their med ball's at, right? And so they're like, oh, see, this is, you know, this is a crock. You don't know what you're talking about. And then we make them stick to it, and all of a sudden the med ball starts to go up, and then sure enough, by the time they get to their throwing season, their baseball velocity is now up. Um, and we've seen it obviously the other way as well, which is our traditional way. Um, so it's, it's been really cool to see most amazing thing that I can give to any of this is that we've never had anybody get hurt doing it. And we've never had anybody go down in velocity doing it. Uh, they've all increased in velocity over time. Now, I'm also not saying that we haven't also incorporated plyometrics every single time we've done this. I'm not saying we haven't also incorporated strength training every time we've done this. And I'm well aware that my greatest asset is the fact that the kid is aging in those four months and the age bracket I'm generally in is going to see some improvement. 
Yeah, that's definitely a uh, full circle and humble of you to just be like, look, there's other things going on here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's re- it is important to mention, but no, you can't. I mean, it just makes me think about uh, spe- the special strength of the Soviets and some things Dr. Michael Yesis has said, like you can only get so far if you're a pitcher and all you ever did was pitch. And obviously, in any traditional program, people are lifting weights and doing other things. And hopefully they're doing other sports or doing other positions or playing or doing something else. But you have to get you eventually have to do something else to get better. Like if you're a basketball player, you might have to practice shooting at certain positions, you know, just rather than playing or particular passing patterns or different. So, and it's, it's always the same way with events in track and field and things like that. So it just makes sense that like, here's some special strength for baseball. Um, what, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about like the front leg in particular, because mm-hmm. that, that, that front block leg. And I think that goes beyond, uh, just pitching and throwing, it's it shows up in a lot of things, uh, it, swinging, hitting, and uh, granted, different in a di- little different mechanism, but cross throwing, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. That break, that break action, I think it's something that athletes um, who are good really can do well. Yeah, well, I, in 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 a pitching concept, and I think um, you know, I forget the one of the guys that I first heard talk about this. It might have been uh, Brent Porcia is a, is a guy out of uh, New Orleans. And he talked about the second force vector and that second force vector after the athlete actually hits the front ground, right. With their front foot, they get this second knee pop, right. And that sends another wave of energy right up through the body. Um, And what you'll notice is yes, a lot of high velocity throwers will get that, but they don't all get it. Right. So it can't be the be all end all. Right. But what you do notice in all those high velocity throwers is that their knee doesn't continue to move once the foot hits the ground, right? It'll stop. It may not hyperextend like uh, Justin Verlander, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it will not continue to move and track forward over the over the toe at that point in time. It'll hit. And really, I think you, you have a major stiffening of that front side is really what you get when you have a high velocity thrower. It's the front hip is really able to brace itself at that point in time. Um, and, and even their, their front oblique and front side and in general, uh, has to really grab hold and stop, stop that force and allow the other force that sort of like catapult type action, uh, to really be created. But yeah, it is, that's across every sport. We see it, we see it in a vast different ways, right? You, um, if you look at, I know you had mentioned javelin, you look at a javelin Mm -hmm. guy, I mean, the, the extension is ridiculous, but in a, we have, um, we have taken a picture and overlaid ghosted a lacrosse shot over it. And it's, it's very, very close. Um, even actually the lacrosse shot was even closer to a baseball swing. Um, and, and again, in a swing, you see that front side triple, uh, triple extension really there, that, that front side, um, you know, ankle knee hit, uh, real extension. Yeah. I think you see anything where the body's a break, even jumping off two legs, the front leg will be a stand up stiffly in front of the athlete yes. to be a break it's 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 pretty common i and i threw javelin myself which is why this is all near and dear to my heart because one of the things that i was i could never get and i think if i could go back in time or maybe if i pick it up again i it's something i think i would be a little bit more armed at is that front leg stiffness uh, to me it was the timing behind it all i just thought i could just stick my front leg out there and magically stop but there was a lot of other things that were in that equation that needed to also happen that i was completely unaware of and so, so yeah, yep, I, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was I was going to get uh, go ahead with what you were going to say. I had a question, but it can totally wait. I, I, the only thing I was going to say is we noticed it a lot in some of our athletes, right? That even even the really good throwers and the really good athletes, they just weren't able to stop this. And we started buying into this concept. We started reading more and more on it, right? And, and understanding that we we really felt like, okay, is it just that their body doesn't feel they can absorb the force that they're actually creating with their backside or, or the momentum moving forward with their front side? And that's why it's not allowing them to stiffen up there at the hip and at the, at the ankle joint, right? And um, so what we started to do is we really started to focus a lot of this, uh, let's see what concentric power we can create through their front leg and train their front leg mildly different than their back leg. And we started doing a lot of single leg drops off of really high, high boxes and trying to get them to create this eccentric, um, you know, capacity through that. Uh, then from a medicine ball standpoint, 
that slanted board that I told you. We were landing into that slanted board ahead of time to reinforce mentally that connection between their brain and extending the leg at a sooner point. And then you do that same drill, you know, 20, 30 times, take the board away and have them do it on a flat ground. They're doing it earlier now in their sequence. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was interesting and it was a lot of, some of it I think was that they couldn't absorb the force. And then I think other was we needed to retrain that brain body connection and get them to understand when to do it and timing. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah, ty- yeah. And so for me, I always felt uh, that's a thing. Now I have a little less experience in the sense of um, I haven't have been a college. I coached uh, javelin as a college track coach seven, eight years ago. So it's been a while there. Uh, and then I've just had some conversations with like minor league baseball players about this and just how important that front leg is. But this idea of because you said it like training the drops and the stiffness and I, it took me back to um she was like episode 65 on this show uh, it was this guy uh, chong ji who talks about the foot a lot and the idea that people who and i started to think about this is someone whose toes are almost more people can't see this i'm making like my hand into a hook <laughs> like the toes are more hook like almost and those tendons on the top of the foot are popping out and the athlete's just really elastic and there's this pre-tensioning of the foot and the plantar fascia that seems like it sets you up better to have that ability to stop um, versus if you don't have that plantar fascia pre-wound, pre-set. Um, there was, I have an N of one with a minor league baseball pitcher I was talking about this with. He does not have that and has that problem in his front leg. Um, mm. I'm sure there could be other things there, but it was something that I was at least thinking about. And then you had said like, yeah, that, that, that dropping, I, I think that builds that, um, that can help build that tensioning and those types of things. And again, right. Most of the time, what are we trying to do? We're guessing, right. We're trying to take really, really mm-hmm. well educated guesses as to what's going to help this athlete, because not one of these drills that I'm doing from these med ball drills is going to help and impact the next athlete the exact same way. Yeah. Did the um, you know, and, and I love when there's arguments in the fitness realm over, oh, that's so ridiculous, or this is so ridiculous. Great. I'm going to take elements of all of them when, and I'm going to let everybody else try and figure out what is right and wrong. And I just want to be somewhere in the middle that's going to help one kid. Um, a lot of our athletes like being barefoot uh, in our facility, and they like doing a lot of these drills barefoot. Um, because they like the ground body connection and feeling what their foot is supposed to be doing and, um, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, it's helping them. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to allow it. Um, and, and it's, it's cool to see how some of them adopt that and some of them don't. Yeah, I want that was going to ask you with the medicine ball drills, because I see this all the time in javelin throwing. And, um, and I mean, I was this was me in many senses, the you're trying to land on a stiff front foot. But what usually happens is you land with it, maybe like bent it a few degrees, like 20, you know, 20 degrees off 180, 30 degrees off 180. And then as you're getting over it, then you stiffen it up. Like it's a volitional after the thought, I'm at least trying, I'm at least intending, yeah. intending to do this. Um, I mean, I guess the intention with the ultimate, the people who throw the fastest in those movements, are they, are they pretty like, is there like pretty stiff, like right off the bat and they, and, or can you throw that med ball fast and have that bend? And then that after kind of after the fact rigidity, do you know what I'm saying? I I totally get it. Um, And I think the answer to you would be, it would depend on the individual um, because I think, uh, look, I have guys that can throw over the fifties, right. And they don't land with a stiff front leg, but are they going to care? Cause they're like, well, I'm in my mid, I'm in the mid nineties and I throw in the mid fifth and I throw in the mid fifties on the med ball. So they're okay with it. Right. But if I have a kid who is in that upper eighties, you know, mid, mid to upper forties on the med ball and that, rigidity is going to get him into those Mm -hmm. 90s you bet that kid's going to be working on that thing left and right when he's in the gym and he's going to be coming to me and we encourage them we want them to go out go research go find more how this med ball drill started one of my kids started challenging me on certain things Hmm. and i said okay great let's you know what let's let's get better you and i both let's get better and uh and it led to to this whole program but um i i would say that for some of them, it's probably the reason they're reaching their peak. For others, they may not need it as much right now. But no matter what, we're always talking to them about once that foot hits, the knee can't continue mm-hmm. to, to, to move forward. So as long as that's happening, I'm okay. Cool. 
Yeah, as long as that intention there, that's it's just no matter what, it's getting a stiff. It's a stiffer spring. It's becoming right. wherever you are now. It's going to be stiffer of a spring in four months. Yep. Awesome, man. Correct. Well, sounds good. Well, hey, I think we covered all the questions on that today. I'll, I'll definitely. I know you have. You said you have videos on YouTube, so I'll make sure yep. that they get in the show notes of the show. I think it complements it all really well, and just. Uh, it was great talking about this stuff, Nick. I just think it's such an awesome way to specifically improve while also uh, taking load off that that injury in, inducing load off players for four months a year. So it was, it was awesome uh, talking to you about it today. I appreciate it, man. Um, be on the lookout too. We're going to try and do uh, a study or two in the coming months on this uh, with a couple of the hospitals that we work with, um, and then also we're going to be doing um, some studies, which I hope work out on uh, grip strength and finger strength uh, in intra-game. So while they're pitching, um, like and when they come in from inning to inning, because I would love to do away with a pitch count. Oh, and I would, yeah. Using I grip would, as a, when your grip yep. strength drops, then you're done. Nice. Exactly. Nice. So when, when the forearm muscles give out, if they, if it is a, if it is uh, sensitive enough, right. The finger tensing, if that is sensitive enough to tell me when the forearm muscles are fatiguing, then that's it. And maybe, maybe over time we can see, Hey, if you have a 10 point drop from your standard, just like we do with a concussion, right? Like we'll get a pre-screen. And if, if we drop 10 points from there at any point in the game, you have to come out. Uh, and it would just be really cool. I, I know that's lofty and that's long-term, but the hope would be that we can get to a point where we don't have just a pitch count. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Keep me updated. I'm excited to hear that. I feel like that could be, and I don't want to keep going at the end of the show, but uh, I feel like that could be something that could be a lot of things too, a lot of skills. As soon as skills, even if it's not even maybe form specific, it's just a nervous system measure too. As soon as that starts to fall off, grip strength falls off. And I love it, man. Keep me updated. I'm excited to hear the results of it all. Will do. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Nick. That does it for another episode. Thanks for tuning in at 183 is in the books. If you enjoyed the show, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to us on. It helps us to get in front of more people. And if you enjoy these shows, it is a fantastic way to support us. Speaking of support as well, definitely check out our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, longtime supporter of this show. They do an amazing job with their website, blog, their sports technology store that spans from training in the K-Box and free lap timing system to assessment, so contact grids, force plates. They really have it all, and they have the best of in each category of sport tech. So be sure to check them out, and that does it for this week. We'll be back next week with another great guest.